Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better future for all. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, we feature a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. How are you doing? Great. To get us in the mood for this first story, have a listen to this. Yes, we're starting with a trip across the pond to Yellowstone National Park, which stretches across Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. And it's actually the first national park in the USA, which was established 150 years ago. So, Craig, I've been fascinated about this story. I'm not sure how long ago you heard about it, but this idea that in 1995 they reintroduced gray wolves into the park and it had all these beneficial uh, cascading effects. Have you heard this story? Yes, I have. It's very well known within my world, uh, Kara. And uh, it is, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, scientists thought reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone would be significant. They are keystone, what's called a keystone species, uh, which means that so much of the ecosystem depends on them. But I think even people like myself, even people ecologists have been very surprised by just how significant the impacts have been. Because, of course, there are uh, predator species. uh, And uh, one of the problems that existed in Yellowstone because of the absence of predators like wolves uh, was actually that you had very high populations of deer in the park. That means deer eat lots of trees, particularly, you know, the saplings, the small ones. So there was actually a problem that there wasn't the natural regeneration of trees happening in Yellowstone as is the way that people wanted. Uh, and actually, when wolves were reintroduced, you know, it was thought, yes, obviously, wolves might kill a few deer and help reduce numbers that way. But actually, what's been observed over the last you know, uh, 25 years is much more profound impacts. And specific, I'll just give you one of them, which is that uh, deer would obviously normally go down to rivers uh, to drink. But of course, that's when they were exposed to being seen by wolves. And so, you know, yes, wolves killed a few deer, but actually the biggest impact is deer started to be much more wary and avoid some of the most obvious areas. Uh, so they created what was so-called a landscape of fear, which meant that deer avoided some of those more exposed areas, which meant that you got much more natural regeneration in them. So you've ended up having many more trees and undergrowth growing around the rivers on Yellowstone. That's good for trees, but it's also good for protecting the water quality, stopping soil erosion, creating whole new habitats around those rivers. So just by reintroducing wolves in 1995, it's led to a profound change uh, for the better for the eco- ecosystem in Yellowstone. And it's just so revealing what can happen when there's just one species missing from an ecosystem. And when you put it back in, uh, the impact it can have is huge. Yeah, it's strange to think that this landscape of fear can have all these benefits to the environment. But, you know, bears were able to come back because they had more access to food. Other animals came back. And, and even the drinking water quality of the local town improved because the deer or the elk weren't, weren't near the water courses and weren't damaging the water courses as they had. But a story exactly. just appeared in the Washington Post this week that reports that one third of those wolves are now dead. So you're a bit of a wildlife expert. I, I think I remember you did your master's thesis on bears in Mongolia. So what's happening in Yellowstone right now with the wolves? Well, it's tragically sad, Cara. I mean, it seems to be that the sort of argument whether to hunt wolves or not has become politicized in the US in, in just the way that so many other issues have. And you would know this better than I would. Uh, but it seems to be that, you know, obviously those 
uh, sort of, for example, Trump supporters have been really keen arguing that it's, it's sort of a right to hunt wolves and it's part of people's heritage. Uh, and obviously conservationists have said, come on, these are predators. You don't really go around trying to shoot predators from a, uh, what's a good ecological point of view. And so um, actually the Trump administration, first of all, uh, made it legal to hunt uh, wolves again. That was overturned uh, uh, in a ruling just last month, but it doesn't apply to the states in question, to Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And so uh, where you've got Republican-led states, uh, where wolf hunting, uh, some of the most intense fights about wolf management are playing out, where wolf hunting is very much seen as something that is you know, a part of a proud tradition. And so very sadly, we've seen 25 wolves uh, hunted in the last six months in Yellowstone. And for, for again, for uh, predators, you know, that's, that's a big number. You know, uh, the whole thing is, is that predators are, any animal that's big and fierce is also rare for the because they're at the top of the food chain so it's a real kind of concern and uh, it it seems to have been a, a very he become a very heated debate in yellowstone yeah i mean this is the most intensively studied animal population in the world because it was reintroduced relatively recently and and you know it's had huge benefits to Yellowstone they they had the most tourists in history last year 5 million people visited and they're saying that the wolf viewing alone accounted for 30 million US dollars to 60 million US dollars every year so it, it's this kind of stick it to liberals thing going on with with local hunters but at the same time having these potentially damaging effects long term with respect to both the environment and the local economy yeah, and, you know, there's often a lot of myths and misunderstandings uh, exist around, you know, species reintroductions. I mean, in the UK, my organisation, the Wildlife Trust, has been reintroducing beavers. And, you know, some of the pushback we get is we, we sort of even have sort of fishing communities sometimes arguing that the beavers are going to eat all the fish. But, of course, beavers are vegetarian, so I don't know <laughs> quite how, how that would happen. So it's kind of curious that people will often almost believe some of the myths that exists in in culture around animals like like and particularly like wolves i mean again wolves are um incredibly unlikely to attack humans i mean really to be honest only it's only even if they've got rabies and even then that's unlikely so you know they are magical creatures i think wolves and uh, absolutely a key part of the ecosystem and if they're not there and if they're not there in the numbers they should be in the ecosystem's not functioning the way it should so um, it's, uh, you know, I hope this debate will get to the right place in the U US where wolves are celebrated, the huge benefits for tourism and for the ecosystem and for things like water quality, as you say, are fully recognised. And uh, wolves can go about their business in peace. Let's hope so. The story that actually got the most amount of coverage this week was one uh, based on a study published in Nature Climate Change, which used three decades worth of satellite data to look at the health of the Amazon rains, rainforest. And, and what did they find, Craig? Yeah, well, you and I, Carl, will know that uh, the uh, it's long been predicted that the Amazon rainforest will could reach a tipping point. And sort of everyone knows one of the things you learn at primary school, really, is just how important the Amazon rainforest is for sucking carbon out of the air and storing carbon, of course. And that's been crucially important. It plays such a hugely important role in sort of regulating the climate globally because it's so huge. But it has been long concerned that that could, could change and that actually with climate change, you get what's called a positive feedback loop. Uh, and positive in this case does not mean it's good. It means it's actually, as you get more climate change, it could lead to drying out of the Amazon rainforest, putting more pressure on it. And then actually the trees dying off and it turning into a savanna landscape, which would 
uh, suck out much less carbon from the air and also store less carbon. And the really big concern from this new study this week is it looks like we're getting closer and closer to that. I mean, bear in mind that already around a fifth of the Amazon rainforest has been lost. Uh, and because of uh, obviously because of logging and other issues and, and fires and so on. Um, but actually, this new study suggests that uh, many, many trees across uh, the Amazon rainforest are now losing health and could be approaching that tipping point. And we could be close to a mass die off of trees, which then would become very hard to reverse. I mean, this is looking, as you said, at three decades of satellite data. And it suggests that there's a loss of resilience in more than 75% of the forest. So this is a huge concern for all of us globally. One thing that I want to point out, and I think we throw out the words tipping point and positive feedback loop, and 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 maybe people don't realize that tipping points are among the greatest fear of climate scientists because they're they're irreversible on human timescales. Yeah. So just like they, they call it a tipping point because it's like the tipping of a wine glass. You know, once the, once the glass tips over and all the wine pours out, you can't get it back into the glass uh, very easily. So if at all, so I mean, I think people aren't really, that those words tipping point aren't resonant with the public in the way that they should and how critical that they actually are. Another way to understand this is these are nonlinear changes. Uh, so it, you, you might sort of get the change happening in a certain rate uh, for a period of time, and then it passes those tipping points. And exactly as you say, not only is it irreversible, but actually you can get the change happening at a far quicker rate than before. And, uh, you know, much as we would be very upset about losing wine from our wine glass, this is a much, much bigger concern. Bear in mind that the Amazon rainforest is home to one out of every 10 species known to science as well. So, you know, this has huge implications for the climate, but it also, for all we know, we could be uh, losing the sort of cure to cancer and other things. I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but it's absolutely true. It's a big concern. And of course, a lot of this is, is not helped by President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, as you indicated there, Cara. You know, he also almost made it a, a physical, big ideological push during the time of his presidency to uh, actually uh, reduce parts of the Amazon rainforest and log it and, and set forest fires in place. You might remember the Glasgow Climate COP uh, just in uh, last October. There was a deal done around trying to uh, halt deforestation uh, by the end of this decade. And uh, actually, Brazil did sign up to that, which is encouraging. But whether it will actually be delivered is, of course, another issue. And I think the final point to think about on this is uh, let's not just point the finger at Brazil here. I mean, probably one of the biggest sources of uh, one of the biggest causes of deforestation in the Amazon now is actually to make way for big plantations for soya, which uh, much of that is then exported, including to Europe, where it's fed to animals like chickens and pigs uh, on our sort of chicken and pig farms. Uh, to grow meat for consumption in Europe and the same in the US and in many other parts of the world. So often when you tuck into, uh, you know, some chicken uh, here in uh, the UK or Ireland or in many other parts of Europe, actually essentially you're eating bits of Amazon rainforest in many cases. Yeah. So we, we've got to look at how all of these kind of issues are linked and look at how our own consumption here in the global north in rich countries actually might be driving this loss of Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Absolutely. So finally, Craig, plastics is in the news every week, but this time it's in a good way. So what's the latest big story on plastics? Yeah, well, we've been desperately looking for some good news on plastics for a long time, haven't we, Cara? <laughs> and uh, actually, this is tentatively a good news story because 
In the last week, 175 countries have agreed to a legally binding global treaty to end the plastic pollution crisis. And by doing it, by tackling the materials entire supply chain, this has been talked about for a long time. There was a proposal from Japan to have a more limited deal that focused on plastics in the oceans. I mean, you know, obviously it'd be great to, to just deal with plastics in the oceans. That would be good. But what's even better is uh, an opposing idea by Peru and Rwanda seems to have won out which is to try and tackle plastic pollution uh, along the whole supply chain and stop producing so much of it in the first place, essentially. Um, so it's a good news story that countries have come together to say they want to do this and they say they want it to be legally diet binding. Of course, we, we know, however, we have got supposedly legally binding agreements in place to tackle both climate change and biodiversity loss as well, and they move painfully slowly. And uh, unfortunately, they haven't been the big silver bullet to solve those problems. And I think this is not going to be the silver bullet to solve the plastic pollution uh, crisis either. But it is a step in the right direction. And it's good to see countries of the world at long last, perhaps just starting tentatively to start to take the plastic pollution crisis. The BBC seriously. reported this as supporters describing the move as one of the world's most ambitious environmental actions since the 1989 protocol and supporters being WWF. I'm a little pessimistic. I mean, having worked with Friends of the Earth, uh, sometimes those global international agreements are dismissed as talk shops. I, I, I don't know where you stand on that issue, but do we really need another global treaty that takes us 30 years to resolve or longer? I think it would be a huge mistake for anyone to rely on this uh, to drive the change. I mean, my view of these big international agreements is they raise, if you like, the bottom bar of performance. They 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 pull up the sort of the, the worst performing uh, companies, countries, whatever. And uh, and it's not where you see the cutting edge new innovation and action. But we need both, don't we? And so um, it still remains critically important that every individual tries to reduce plastic pollution, that every company tries to reduce their uh, involvement in plastic pollution, that we cut plastic out of our supply chains. Um, I'm really uh, excited at some of the work being done in the EU at the moment around a circular economy, trying to produce that and, and tackle some of the plastic pollution there. As a Brit, I look, look on with admiration, but sadly, we're not part of that discussion anymore. I wish we were, but sadly, we're not. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see that finally this issue is being tackled and talked about. But as you say, we've got to move from talking about it to really stopping this. Well, that brings us into a great segue. After the break, we're going to find out about Ireland's move to a circular economy.